I've been convinced for a long, long time that so many folks in the body of Christ, maybe most folks in the body of Christ, know mostly what to do, but need some help being motivated to do it. So we're going to look today at the motivation behind the method. You might call it the purpose behind the practice. Paul says you are to discipline yourself for godliness. If you are in the ESV these days, it says uh, to train yourself for godliness. Uh, might literally be translated as exercise for godliness. And Paul points out that physical exercise is of little value. But in contrast to the spiritual exercise of being involved in your own spiritual growth, physical exercise pales in comparison. And you know the value of physical exercise, especially this time of year, right? And in a couple weeks from now, you're going to be probably doing a little bit more of that because of other things you're doing this time of year. But you know the value of physical exercise. It's obvious. But Scripture is clear that it pales in comparison to that of spiritual exercise. Today, we'll look at the purposes behind daily Bible reading, prayer as a matter of discipline. Next week, we'll spend more time talking about the what, and this morning, more of the why. With the promise in Romans 8.29 that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Do you not at times wonder why that's not happening in your life at the pace that you would like? You might ask, why am I not growing? If that's true, if I've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, why am I not growing spiritually? Why am I still so drawn by the fool's gold of the world? Why is it so easy for me to abandon the body of Christ for other opportunities that really have nothing to do with Christ or his body? Why is that so easy for me? Why can't I become impassioned with the things of the Lord the way I see others impassioned with it. Why do I not thirst for the Word of God? I I have the appearance of a person who kind of knows the Bible, especially when I'm in the world. People might even look to me as a person who wants to uh, honor the Lord, and I talk about the Lord, and I tell them about the Lord, and I tell them they need the Lord, but the truth of the matter is I don't read my Bible at all, except every now and then, maybe. Why is that? Why can I not get traction? Why do I keep sinning the same sins that I hate so much? Why do I keep going back to those besetting sins, the entangling sins? Why do they have such a grip on me? Did I really wreck my life again by making another major foolish decision? Why am I not having a significant impact on the body of Christ? And I look around, I see people having a major impact on the body exercising their spiritual giftedness. Why is that not happening with me, you might ask? Why am I not evangelistically in love with my neighbors rather than man-fearingly in love with my family? Why is it that I have not yet found the opportunity, prayed for the opportunity, longed for, fasted for the opportunity to share the legitimate truth of the gospel with my loved ones who are yet without Christ, and yet pretend to be with Christ. What about this? What if you would say, you know what, no, no, I'm a Bible reader. 
you know, I'm faithful. I, I do what I have to do, and, um, you know, I'm glad to do that, and I know it's, uh, it's a duty, and so I, I engage that duty. It's a, it's a regular discipline of my life, but, um, but I'm dry. Um, I'm not impassioned for the Lord. You know, I don't really love Jesus with an intrinsic, powerful love that wells up within me and, 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 and causes me to weep when we sing together because I, I'm just amazed at what God has accomplished by his grace. While I strive, you might say this, while I strive to be faithful to the Lord, I'm, I'm spiritually dry. Why don't I desire the Lord? Why am I depressed if I am known by the loving God of heaven as his daughter, as his son? Why do I get discouraged? Why do I not have the seeming deep joy that so many Christians have? Why am I not having massive, lasting impact on others? Why is my job, why is my work so much more important to me? Why is it so much easier for me to go and do the mundane things at work than it is for me to drink voraciously from the Word of God, as Peter calls us to in 1 Peter 2? What's the stumbling block? What's the barrier? What is it that's preventing me from having that Paul-like love for Jesus Christ. The Bible's clear about this stuff. Crystal clear. And I would venture to say that most of you could outline, you could probably give some legitimately classroom-efficient expression of how spiritual growth works. And you could probably list the disciplines of the Christian faith. Maybe you've read Donald Whitney's book, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. Or maybe you, as many people in our church, have, have read Habits of Grace, and, and you know those things, and you can, you can list them. You can probably list eight or 12 of them, and you can say, yeah, I know what those things are, and I've enjoyed those things when I've done them, but I find myself at times getting easily embittered with people who are faithful to Christ. Somehow, getting an attitude toward others when those people love me, and yet I, I find myself not engaging why is that? You know, I know the methods. It's because you're not subject to the motive. There's some lacking motivation in your heart, in your life. Maybe there's a, a lack of practice of being exposed to that motive. You're so exposed to things of the world on a constant basis that any inkling of motivation to honor Christ gets flooded over and rendered disinteresting in light of the flash of Southern California life or whatever else. Here's the word from Paul that I think will unearth what the problem is. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. There's a sense in which it is a mystery, but it's not an unfindable mystery. He goes on to say, he was manifested in the flesh. Friends, that's Christmas. 
That's the incarnation. That's the true purpose of really why we look to the person of Christ during this season. It's not for, you know, those faltering plastic toys that are going to fall apart in two and a half weeks. It's for the person of Christ who is eternal in the past and the future. It's him. It's his goodness, it's his sovereignty, it's his grace, it's his mercy, it's the peace that he provides. It's the joy that wells up in the life of the person who's legitimately devoted to him. He was manifested in the flesh. He became a baby. God took on flesh. He did not stop being God. He is very God, very man. He's not co-redemptrix with Mary. She doesn't hear your prayers. She has no idea who you are and has zero interest in you because she is overwhelmed and overtaken and drenched in the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping him to this day. It's so easy. It's, uh, it's so common to get derailed with the trappings of the world, even false religion that looks good on the surface, and it seems noble. The power of the mystery of godliness is in this God who became flesh. It also says he was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated. What does that mean? It means that all the false accusations, all the misgivings, all the non-truths about him ultimately either are or will be, they either have been or one day will be proven untrue. And the truth about the God-man, Jesus Christ, will be on display in fullness of glory. So he's vindicated by the Spirit of God. How does that work? Two ways. Two categories of people. It takes place in the heart and the mind and the life of the believer because the Spirit of God indwells that person. And as that person reads the Word of God, he comes to agree with sound teaching from the Word of God because the author of the Word of God indwells him. And so he reads it as the child of God and he begins to understand it. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that clearly. Natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He rejects it. He hears it and he goes, no, that can't be right. That's different from my tradition. That can't be right. Paul goes on to say, but the spiritual man appraises all things. That's why he understands sound teaching of God's word. It also takes place in the category of the unbeliever. John tells us uh, that the spirit of God is bringing conviction with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment throughout the world. So for every person on the planet, there is the conviction regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, he knows he's a sinner. Everybody knows they're a sinner. They do everything they can to wash it over. And the church has largely been unhelpful with regard to this in many ways, uh, nurturing self-esteem, uh, focusing on disorders rather than sin, uh, telling people that what they really need is a better pill, uh, maybe better food, you know, things like that. Nothing wrong with better food. But the point is that what people really need is to understand the total depravity into which they're born so they know what they're up against. It's a weak gospel that saves people from a false anthropology. If you don't understand the truth about your nature, you have zero interest in the truth of the life-saving gospel. You won't want legitimate salvation if you think that you were born into basic goodness. 
Paul goes on in this passage in 1 Timothy 3 to say, seen by angels. The angels began proclaiming his glory in eternity past. They did that at his birth. They ministered to him, and ultimately they are singing praises to him throughout heaven forever and ever and ever. The role of angels is to give observation to him and to glorify him. Proclaimed among the nations. This is why we have missions. Proclaimed among the nations. The book of Revelation tells us that there will be elect saved from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so what are we to do about that? We're to be involved in missions throughout the world. This is for the purpose of the declaration of the person of Christ. You know this, don't you? The ultimate purpose of evangelism is not the salvation of lost souls. That's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of evangelism is the declaration of the glory of Jesus Christ. He's going to save the elect, and he's given us the great privilege of communicating the truth by which he saves the elect. So without fail... We have the ability to always be successful in the primary purpose of evangelism, and that is the declaration of the glory of Jesus Christ, proclaiming him among the nations. Believed on in the world. Again, that's a reference to the reality that throughout the world there will be believers and then taken up in glory. That's your Christmas message. Taken up in glory. Not only was he resurrected on high, proving his victory, his triumph, his power over sin and death, but he ascended in the glorified state such that he would be returned to, in some sense, represented to his Father and that they would regain that union and joy that they shared in eternity past. Taken up in glory. Returned to the glory that Jesus asked be returned to him. The mystery of godliness. This matter of godliness is what ought to be most on our hearts this time of year. Not how we can best please others with finding the exact right gift. I don't know about you, but I wait and I wait and I wait and I think it's going to pop into my head. I know eventually I'm going to find that gift and it gets, you know, a couple days before Christmas and pretty soon I'm like you. I'm driving around in the traffic going, I've done it again. Unless you're one of those folks who doesn't do that, and I'm really jealous of you if you are. But that's not what Christmas is about. Praise God for the joy of gift giving, the lavish benefit that we have to be able to pour out our love upon others in representation of the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. That's really what that ought to be, that our gift giving should be a vehicle, really an opportunity to talk about the great gift of God the Father to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we do in our home. We try hard to make that the, the focus. Sometimes that's hard when the tree can barely be seen for all the gifts. Uh, but the, the joy that it is in giving those gifts ultimately to say, we love you, but, but we really want you to understand God's love. We want you to embrace the love of Jesus Christ. You gave his life for you so much greater than anything you can buy at Toys R Us. Infinitely greater This matter of godliness. That's what you want, is it not? Don't you want to be godly? You know, you find yourself getting into these patterns of ungodliness. You go to places you know you shouldn't. You watch things you know you shouldn't. You spend time with people you know you shouldn't spend time with. Even if they're Christians, you say, you know, we are not good for each other. 
<laughs> my best friend many years ago was the worst person in my life because we had the same weaknesses. And a pastor said to us, you know, you guys need to stop spending time together. You know that, right? Accountability partners, sure. More like gathering and commiseration. Misery loves company. The matter of godliness should come not simply as a devotion to daily time in the Word, but your daily time in the Word should bolster that. It should be a shot in the arm in the morning. Whatever time you've chosen, it should really fuel your involvement in the body of Christ. It should excite you for the joy that comes in trusting in Him. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, Paul says, Honor widows who are truly widows. You know, we think of widows as those who maybe are, in some sense, the deserving recipients of our ministry, right? And that's true, if they are truly widows according to Scripture. The Lord's very specific about these things. You know, to what person should we give honor? He says, honor widows who are truly widows, meaning there are those who are in the appearance of being a widow, but not necessarily a widow. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So this matter of nurturing godliness in the home, uh, Paul goes on further to give further stipulations for the widow, that she would be put on that list. And that list involves primarily a faithfulness to the church. What it comes down to Christ and his church, that godliness would emanate from her home. You walk in her home and you spend time there and you walk out and you, you feel godlier, you know, or at least you feel like you want to be godlier. You know, you don't walk out of there saying, wow, she is a great cook. Praise God if you say that, because there is some sense of godliness in that, isn't there? I think. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and many other things that seem so impractically unhelpful with regard to the matter of godliness. But godliness is not this otherworldly idea that you somehow don't have impact on people's lives. Quite the opposite. The person who engages his or her spiritual gifts is the one who engages in godliness in a way that it matters. It affects people. He says in chapter 6, verse 3, Paul does, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound doctrine, words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Listen, false teachers sound like they know what they're talking about. They're deceptive. That's what false teachers best do. They teach a lot of truth so as to lure people in. Well, that's true. I've seen that in the Bible. That's true. I've seen that in the Bible. And then they sneak in these false doctrines, and many times it's a false gospel. So Paul is warning us about those people. Rather than being committed to what Paul speaks about here, look at this, verse 6, "...but godliness with contentment is great gain." For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what appeared to be godliness budding or blossoming in a person's life and he gets involved in church leadership pretty soon, he's finding, hey, I can make some money doing this. So he connects himself in the right ventures and pretty soon he's shipwrecked. My boys asked me last night about a particular church, not near here, a large church in Chicago. We'd watched a short movie on the birth of Christ last night. We saw that it was produced by this large church, and one of my boys asked me, is that a good church? And I said, well, you know, (laughs) the pastor of that church is known for scandal. It's recently been made public that he embezzled over $500,000 from his church. This is a guy who only 20 years ago was considered to be orthodox, committed to sound doctrine. But when I saw him going off the rails was when he started really embracing and promoting psychology. But when it really became clear is when he made a video, a 10-minute video, where he said, there are five ways by which God speaks to you. Oh, and one of them happened to be the Bible. Five ways? in which God speaks to you? No. John has warned us in the final chapter of the Bible that to him who adds to the Bible, to him will be added the plagues mentioned in it. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 tells us that the person who adds to the Word of God will be proven a liar. So those other four ways were ways in which this teacher, this preacher, this pastor in Chicago has been promoting false doctrine, the idea that Jesus speaks to you privately. He gives you a word in addition to the closing of the canon. Peter, in 2 Peter 1, this is really maybe my favorite passage when it comes to the matter of nurturing a love for the sufficiency of the Scripture in the heart of the believer. Uh, He says in 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It encompasses everything. It covers everything. It doesn't mean that if you need help with an algebra problem, you go to the Bible. That's silly, right? What it means is that you have the wisdom to know where to go, the wisdom to know what to think, the wisdom to know what to believe. But in particular, if you want godliness, if you want legitimate godliness, look not to your tradition. Look to the Word of God. This chapter in 2 Peter 1 is about the Word of God. God. It's where Peter alludes to his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he says, but you'd think, you know, he'd say, you know, you need an experience. You need euphoria. You need some major happening in your life that makes, you know, Christianity all the more attractive to you. No, no, he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, but we have the more sure prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention. It's a matter of being in the Word. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness fastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness and the true knowledge of Jesus Christ as explained in his word. That's what you need. That's what you need. Now you, you say, I'm in this particular spot in the gamut of spiritual growth, right? Everybody's somewhere on that Spectrum. I have something for every one of you this morning. I mean, surely if I've given you five motives, one of them is going to hit home. And I'm convinced one of them is exactly where you are. I'm completely certain. One of these areas of necessary focus is where you will find hope. You may say, you know, I'm kind of involved in all five of those things. Fantastic, but still, I'm convinced. One of them is where you need to really begin to lay hold of the person of Jesus Christ in order to honor him by way of that particular motive. Is that encouraging? I hope it is. I hope you're not thinking, man, how am I going to get my arms around five motives this morning? I still got Christmas presents to buy. Look for one. Look for one. We're going to move quickly as we go through these. This morning we'll examine five motives from God's Word to stimulate your growth in godliness. That's the idea. Very simple, huh? That you would be motivated. As I said, next week we're going to look at the methods. Today is the principles or the purposes. Next week, the practice. Today, the motives. Next week, the methods. In fact, I'm going to be sending you emails this week. You say, man, I'd like to get started now. Fantastic. I'm going to start sending you emails tomorrow morning. And I'm going to include for you practices or methods, websites, places you can go to really nurture your love for Jesus Christ, that you'll grow in godliness. And I I strongly encourage you to lean heavily on your family group shepherd, that you would cling closely to God's spiritual design for you, 1 Peter 5, that you're subject to the elders for the purpose of you becoming more faithful to Christ, more devoted to Christ, more godly, and more helpful to others to do the same. First motive I want to bring to your attention is the glory of God. The glory of God. This is the ultimate motive for all mature Christians. Now, I'm up here without my timekeeper today so i have no idea where we are could somebody just give me what how close are we to 11 o'clock i want to it's 20 to 11 okay um listen very fast will you because we have lots to (laughs) talk about you do not increase god's glory i think you know that you don't make him look better Uh, To say that you did would be like saying that you are adding value to God when you worship Him. You can't and don't make Him more valuable or even more appealing. You don't give Him a greater essence or even a greater presence. His intrinsic glory is what it is. It has always been what it is in eternity past and what it will always be in eternity future. 
To say that you increase his glory by glorifying him would be to say that you add to who he is. You can't do that. He's immutable. He does not mutate or morph. God does not change. So you don't add to his glory, but you do ascribe his glory to him. That's what we're saying when we say glorify God with your life. That simply means that when you glorify God, you are calling attention to his glory or his greatness, and you are to do that in your own heart first, but also in the presence of other believers and unbelievers. When God's glory begins to be your motive, and what am I talking about? Motive for what? Motive for the method of spiritual growth, really developing a daily devotional life, being in the Word, a time of prayer, time of Scripture memory, singing to the Lord, even fasting as we've talked about. All those disciplines of the Christian faith, how are they motivated? The ultimate motivating factor is the glory of God. The Westminster Catechism has said, well, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And those things go hand in hand. Think of it. In the moment when you are legitimately glorifying God, you are enjoying God. You're resting in Him. You're thankful for what He has commanded of you, but also that from which He has prohibited you because you know that there are safeguards He's established in your life. And when you cross those lines, you begin to get non-discerning. You begin to bring destruction into your life. You begin to reject sound counsel. You know how that goes. You've seen it in other people. You've seen it in your own life. But you're enjoying God when you're enjoying His Word. To drink deeply, as Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2, as a baby voraciously sucks down that pure milk, is to enjoy God the way that baby is enjoying that milk. This is the apex of the Christian life. It is why you were created. John Owen, in The Glory of Christ, said, all persons not immersed in sensual pleasures, not overdrenched in the love of this world and present things, who have any generous or noble thoughts about their own nature being an end, are under the highest obligation to betake themselves to this contemplation of Christ and His glory. Without this, they shall never attain true rest of satisfaction in their own minds." He it is alone in whom the race of mankind may boast and glory. End quote. The rest that the believer longs for is in the glory of Christ, making much of him. This is why you were created. Ephesians 1:11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, that you might exist for the purpose of praising God and drawing attention to him and to his great glory. That's why God created Paul says in Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Do you think about that in the workplace or are you, you know, disgruntled over an unreasonable 
boss. You remind yourself, he's not my ultimate boss. God is. Christ is. I work for Christ's glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. In all that you do, do it to the glory of God. In John 17, 24, Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That his disciples, that those who claim his name would long for his glory. John 2, 11, you remember this. Uh, the first of his signs, Jesus did it. Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. He turned the water into wine. What was the big deal there? It was that it displayed his glory. It showed his greatness. He did what no man could do. He accelerated the fermentation and the development process of the making of wine. And it was the best wine ever known to mankind before or since. Psalm 21.5, his glory is great through your salvation. You think of God's glory when you think of your relationship with Christ. Is that what comes to mind? That it was for God's glory that he saved you when he redeemed you and he caused you to be born again. He ultimately is glorified in that because he performed the impossible. He did what you could not do. He did what no man can do. He accomplished the redemption, really the transfer of the sinful state he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's God's genius and miraculous design. So if you love the glory of God and you enjoy him and his glory every day, if this describes you, then praise God. If you're inclined to ascribe his glory to him as he deserves and you see a regularly increasing desire for his glory in your heart, and pray for those around you and invest in them all the more. Invest in them. Be the person who pours into others so that they too will enjoy the person of God by ascribing his glory to him. But if you say, man, this is so far out of my league, my head's spinning right now, I don't get any of what you're talking about. It means nothing to me. I don't ever think about glorifying God. I wouldn't mind being the person who wants to glorify God, but truly it just, it just escapes me. I don't, you know, it's not on my radar at all. Or, or maybe on the other hand, you'd say, I know this is the purpose for which I'm created. I know, I know that. I know God created me for his glory, but it's not my daily passion. I love to glorify God, but I forget about it more than I remember it. I've occasionally found pleasure in declaring his greatness as a passion of my heart, but I need help. I need instruction. I need a clear explanation of the pathway to get there more regularly. What do I do? If that or something like that describes you, then you need the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God is given to all mankind. We call this common grace. You see it in the general revelation of Psalm 19 where God declares his glory to all mankind and man sees it on display. And if you read Romans 1, you see the quick rejection of God's command upon people's life to display his glory simply by giving thanks. 
And so this domino spiritual downfall, really passionate pathway toward destruction, starts with refusing to be thankful. Mostly for refusing to be thankful for God, ultimately results in most cultures in a sexual revolution. Sound familiar? Starts with ingratitude. And so it's a rejection of God's common grace. Uh, Paul makes it clear in Romans 1 uh, that he, that God has written his existence on man's heart. He's written it in nature. He's written it in creation. And so uh, the, the person who calls himself an atheist is only trying to fool you because he's not fooled. He knows he's not an atheist. He knows God exists. You say, no, I know somebody who really believes it. No, you don't. You know somebody who's very persuasive. So forget the idea that someone can actually be an atheist and just know that many people are extremely persuasive. Why? Because they want to believe it themselves even though they can't. Why? Because that eliminates accountability to the God of the Bible. And typically it manifests itself in some counterfeit religion. You know, they declare themselves to be atheists. They continue for years, maybe decades, to reject sound truth the sound gospel, and eventually they kind of warmly walk their way into a more comfortable false religion. It's easy. They feel better about themselves because it's a religion of self-achievement. It's a religion of salvation by works. And so they feel better about self, and so they've trampled on God's grace. Now, you may be passionately committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to his word and to his church and to evangelism, but you struggle with maintaining a passion for his glory as your primary motive. Why is that? You've forgotten grace. Believe it or not, though you're keenly aware of, you've even memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you know that salvation is a gift. You didn't earn it. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. It's by grace. You know that. You've told people that. You've won people to the Lord by teaching them that, by showing them that, and yet you become legalistically, condescendingly unkind toward others who don't achieve what you have achieved. If you're not guilty of that, you're extremely unusual. But this often happens as the person begins to mature by grace that he forgets grace for others. Well, he loves God's grace for himself, but he has a hard time ministering to others by grace. And so the result is, rather than spending his time reveling in the glory of God, he spends his time reveling in the glory of fill in your name. We're all guilty. And so as we look at the track record, we look at our own spiritual resume, we look at others' lives and say, when, oh when, will he stop doing those things and start doing the right things? And it's really a pharisaical condescension. And so you're overwhelmed by that. You become overtaken really with pride and self-worship. And so you don't have any interest. You've lost interest in glorifying God because you're glorifying yourself. It's an abandonment, really a rejection of the commandment, the fundamental commandment of God to glorify Him and Him alone. Well, if you were to say, you know, this idea of grace, I, I really don't get it. 
I sure don't get the glory of God idea, and I really don't get the idea of grace. You know, that would describe me uh, 19 years ago when I was exposed as a false convert. Very self-righteous. A whitewashed tomb. God exposed that. I mean, it came crashing down in the most massive of ways. I was single. I, hadn't, I was five years yet from meeting Kimberly, uh, but God exposed a double life. And um, it, it was earth-shattering, and yet I think it was the most important thing that ever happened to me. And many of you are going to know what I'm about to say because I've said it so many times, but my pastor, John MacArthur, said to me, Todd, you know, you need to understand God's grace. I thought, I, re- you know, I really thought he was going to say, hey, it's been nice having you here. Thanks for trying seminary. That was tough, but oh well, not everybody can survive. Um, enjoy Missouri when you go back there. But his words to me were, Todd, you need to understand God's grace. And he, he said some other things, but that's what I remember. And I did. I did. I got my concordance. What else am I going to do? I got my concordance, and I, I looked up the word grace, and I just focused on grace because I was so disillusioned by my own performance because my performance was just that. It wasn't real. It was an effort to maintain some measure of appearance. You know, Paul warns us of this in 2 Timothy 3, that there are those who have an appearance of godliness without what? Anybody know it? Without power. What's that? Without sanctification, without real spiritual growth, without real godliness. You know, it's so easy to become a good actor. I think maybe every Christian is tempted by that early on. And some people stay with that 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And so they're just doing lots of acting. And then, you know, you go with grace and love to kind of help them with that. No, 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 no. Don't attack my acting. Oh, I mean, um, my godliness. You don't want to be that person, you know, who takes your performance by way of a false conversion to hell. You want grace. You want grace. If you've forgotten God's glory, it's important for you to recognize that God's grace is that by which he produces his glory in you and he enables you to communicate his glory to others. But if you say, I just don't get this whole thing of grace, I don't get this thing of glory, I'm not sure why I came this morning, I wish I had slept in, then the thing that you need this morning is the gospel. You need the gospel of God. Oh, you mean the good news. I know all about that. You need the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what he has called every unbeliever to. And yet, as you know, there are so few people who can even define the gospel. When we ask folks to commit by way of covenant to our local church, we ask them to commit to a sound biblical definition of the gospel. Anytime you're having a discussion with someone who says, you know, my life seems like a sham right now, I I need help, then the best thing you can do is open your Bible. Take them to the Word of God. Tell them what God has explained the gospel to be. I can't think of a better place than 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That's a clue. Paul's about to explain the gospel. Let me just tell you, this explanation of the gospel is massively foreign and contradictory to a works system. 
It's completely different. But here's what Paul explains to be the gospel. He says, I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, with emptiness. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And probably my favorite passage, for those of you who have worked through a baptism testimony and you said, I'm struggling with this, I almost always have asked you to go to Romans 6. Romans 6, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Right? How can we who have the gospel still live in sin? You know, that double life? Pretty good at performance, but not so good at godliness in the privacy of one's own life, much less one's own mind. The mind that is impassioned with, really drenched with ungodly thinking. You know, but it kind of hangs in there a little bit. There's hope for you this morning. You need the gospel. You need to stop depending upon your performance. And you need to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. And you need to go to your knees and you need to cry out to God with someone there who can help you with this to understand the power of the gospel to produce godliness in you. If you've got no hunger for godliness, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel transforms a life. When I see that spiritual growth taking place in people's lives, I I see their sanctification overcoming their slander. I see their interest in the glory of God overcoming their gossip. I see them falling in love with the person of Christ Losing interest in the things of the world. That's what the gospel does, that transforming work. The person who has little or no interest in the glory of God really doesn't understand that grace, not performance, is the vehicle to godliness, needs the gospel. And the person who has the gospel has enough of a taste of it, they want more. And if you say, you know, that's, that's not me. You know, I'm just not, I'm not there. I mean, I hope you're encouraged by this call to meditate upon the gospel, to preach the gospel to yourself. But if you're still struggling with these concepts, you know, if God's glory is of disinterest to you, God's grace is no joy for you, God's gospel is not life-changing for you, then you need the guidance of God. You need the guidance of God. You say, well, no kidding. I mean, I know that. I want God to tell me what his will for my life is. Every morning I pray for him to tell me what it is. Come on, write it on the wall. Show me in a cloud. Tell me through a friend, anything. I'll take anything. You need God's guidance. Here's what this comes down to. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God, the Word, became flesh. 
You don't have a personal hotline to the person of Jesus. He's not going to come to your house and tell you what you need to do. He's not going to say, choose this college over that one. Take this career. Turn that job down because I've got this one around the corner for you. God does not operate that way, contrary to what the charismatic movement would have you think. More people have found themselves to be disillusioned and really shattered over this false idea that Jesus is going to speak to you outside of his word. But the word became flesh. And the word as flesh returned to heaven, but you still have the word. (laughs) You have every bit as much power in the actual word of God as those who sat next to him in that boat while he slept did. Those who were discipled literally by him. You have the same word of God that he has. You have the guidance of God. God, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, think of it this way, friends. I don't want to give you so much of a negative motivation for being in the word of God, but recognize that God is watching your every move. And in the context of having the Word of God that's living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It separates soul from spirit. Soul and spirit are inseparable. You don't have a soul and a spirit. Your soul and your spirit are the same thing, two words that mean the same thing. So what's the idea? The idea is the Word goes in and it separates you. The Lord does spiritual heart surgery on you by cracking open your ribs and exposing what's going on in there. That's what happens when you're in the Word, when you're sitting under sound teaching, when you're under sound counseling, when you're reading the Word, when you're engaging in that which God has called you to. But again, verse 13 in Hebrews 4 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So my hope for you this morning is that you'd be done with the double life, if that's you. And if it's not you, that you would help others to be done with that double life. Be no longer the person that, that really kind of, you know, does the right thing. You know, you're having a quiet time, and you're honoring the Lord, and you're committed to the church, but you're not really deeply, intrinsically involved in people's lives in such a way that one day they're going to look back and say, thank you for investing in me because I was lost. I was drowning in this this spiritual quagmire that was an admixture of things that I see in the Bible and in other people's lives and my interest in things of the world. The guidance of God. How is the guidance of God given to us? It's given to us in His Word. But His Word calls you not only to read the Bible, it calls you to be involved in what we call the one another's because that's what the Bible calls it. Counseling one another, praying for one another, giving to one another, admonishing one another. Again, our our covenant that we agree to as members of the Anchor Bible Church really calls you to those one another's, that you wouldn't be involved in discipleship. The discipleship would be the great love of your life. Why? Because it brings you to the place where you long to glorify God. There's so many passages throughout the Bible on the Bible 
You want a good treatise on the Bible, read Psalm 119. Let's read through it. See what God says about his word, about its power. Read Psalm 19. The word of God makes the simple wise. It's a promise. God will enable you to honor him, to have a godly life. He'll give you guidance. You must be in the Word. Again, 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, discipline yourself for godliness. So what do you do? You have to have a Bible reading plan. You have to be in prayer on a daily basis. Say, well, I've tried that and I just can't get traction. Then you need to take the guidance that's spoken of throughout the book of Proverbs that clearly focuses on the fact that those who are wise seek counsel from wise people. As I mentioned earlier, when I I see people really starting to grow spiritually, at the same time, when I see people really starting to regress spiritually, you know what they do? They run from godly people. And they get counsel from ungodly people to do ungodly things. And they say, well, I sought counsel. But the godly person subjects himself to the truth of God's word that calls us to subject ourselves to godly people. Why? Because godly people will have a godly influence on those who want to be godly. So the guidance of God, that should be your motive, right? Now you say, why in the world did you go 5, 4, 3, 2, 1? You're wondering about that. It's because the fifth motive is the ultimate motive. And the first motive is the first motive. Number one is the first motive you will have ever experienced. So I, I want to become godly, but wow, Todd, the glory of God, that's way out of my league. The grace of God, I really don't understand it. Uh, the gospel of God, okay, I've heard you talk about that, but I don't really find myself actually devoted to that in a way that I could explain it to anybody. The guidance of God, okay, I know I need to read my Bible, but I, I'm still not there. I'm still struggling. You, you might say, I would love to love the glory of God, but I don't. I wish I were resting in the grace of God, but I'm not. I wish my hope were in the gospel of God, but it's not. And I'd like to train myself in the guidance of God, but I can't. So what hope is there for me? I'm hanging on by a thread. I am at the end of myself. What is going to motivate me? The gathering for God. The gathering for God. You need to be around those people whose joy is a mystery to you, those who seem to handle hardship with humility. Those who deal with the difficulties of life in a desperate dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ for honoring him rather than pointing fingers at others. There needs to be a devotion to the body of Christ. Friends, there is no such thing as Christianity without the body of Christ. In fact, let me go so far as to say there is no such thing as Christianity with a toe-dipping experience with the body of Christ where you engage with the body of Christ when it's convenient. That is not Christianity, stop fooling yourself. Life is much more painful for you if you are doing that than if you never involved yourself with the body of Christ at all. If you're in that stage, if you know you sleep too late, you miss most of the worship service, or you, you haven't gotten involved in a family group where you're exercising your spiritual gifts, or, or you've committed yourself to do some things and, and you're not doing them, and you're just not getting any traction, you're finding yourself unable to engage, then the bottom line is 
you need to acknowledge that God uses people to save people. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. From faith to faith, it's a key component in the delivery of the gospel. Chapter 10, verse 8, Romans, Paul says, but what does it say? The word is near you. Listen, this is to you. Those of you who love the word, you're in the word. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the name for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And listen to this, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You need discipleship. If you say, I, I'm barely hanging in there. I mean, I barely find my hair half the time. And when I do, I get, you know, just kind of disillusioned. And, and I think, you know, okay, I've heard this stuff before, I think. But I'm not getting any traction. I'm so easily drawn by the world. I do not find myself gaining any legitimate spiritual growth. I know I'm not godly. But I have to have the time to think that people think that I am. What do I do? You need to keep engaging in relationships, but you need to go deeper and you need to confess the fact that those other four motives are lost to you. You need to tell someone who will put their arm around you. And by the way, not that person with whom you have those same patterns that obviously has not helped you. You need to subject yourself to a godly person, really godly People, go to Titus 2, go to 2 Timothy 2, read the book of 1 John, look at the patterns of discipleship by which God lifts that person out of the mundane, false spiritual life and brings them into a place of God honoring and what I would call basic Christianity. Why is it that so often we look at the person who's clearly spiritually mature and he's having an impact on people and we think, whoa, man, now there's a spiritual giant. Friends, that's normal Christianity. That's the baseline, that you love Christ. And the result of loving Christ is that you love the body. And when there are those who start to get annoyed with you because of your, your devotion to Christ and his body, you gently sit down with them and say, look, this is eternal. My soul, your soul, the souls of many are on the line my hope would be that together through an honest and Christ-honoring relationship, we could come to the place where we enjoy Christ and his body together. 
not in a way that results in dissension and discomfort. Well, three quick implications. Number one, focus on one motivation. You know, you might say five motivations. I, I, I don't know that I can keep my mind focused on all these things. Start with one. Even if you are genuinely, patternistically committed to these five motives, focus on one. You say, you know what, I, I kind of do all these things. Good, good. Bask in the glory of God all the more. Read solid books that really lift you up to the place where you love the glory of God. Drench yourself with scripture, memory. Exalt God in your heart and life when you're tempted on those days when things are difficult to go sit in your car at lunch and just kind of have some me time. Instead, have some glory of God time. Drink deeply from passages of scripture that explain his great glory. Read the book of Ephesians. Focus on one motivation. Focus on one motivation. That's the first implication. Number two, develop a written schedule. That's what I'm going to help you with this week. I'm going to send emails to you this week. They're going to help you develop a commitment to the, the practices in life. And you don't have to do this. I want to help you. If you say, you know, I don't want to do that. I got my own thing going. That's great. But it's a, it's a help to you. And I think you'll find it very helpful. Develop a written schedule where you are slicing up your time with devotions to your family, with devotions to your job, you know, so that things don't surprise you. Oh, my word, I didn't know I had to do that. It's been on your calendar for six weeks. Oh, yeah, but I forgot about it, you know. But you're doing it because you have set that time aside and you're committed to doing it in a way that honors the Lord. Well, um, you know, the first thing that ought to go on your schedule, I don't think it's your devotional time. I think it's the time you go to sleep. I think that's the first thing you ought to decide is when am I going to bed and devote myself to getting a good night's rest so that when I get up, the Lord is the main priority of my heart and life. I'm going to help you with that. I'll send you emails that will help you develop that. Third, ask a spiritually mature person in your local church to help you with it, to help you with your schedule. Why your local church? Because that's the only thing the New Testament knows. Say, well, I've got a you know an aunt in Alabama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that before. I've heard things like that so many times. You know, I've got a friend at work. We have a Bible study at work. Great. That's really, truly, that's really wonderful. But that's not the biblical design. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's great, really. But you can't do that in a way that's ultimately going to result in your spiritual growth and theirs. You need to be passionately, intrinsically involved in a 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 picture of the local church. hope those implications are helpful. I hope them to be more helpful. Next week, we'll talk more about the practice or the method of growing in godliness. I hope you see these five motives really as a sequential spiritual freight train. Hop on where you can. Focus in a way that draws attention to where you have experienced encouragement where you find that one of these motives has been motivating to you, pour yourself all in. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the one whom we worship, the one whose life and death has provided forgiveness of sins and the joy for us to worship him even now. It's in his name we pray. Amen.